Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, uh, coming to you live from beautiful Malibu, California. Beautiful, sunny day here. And today we have Stephen Gundry, MD, with us, the author of The Plant Paradox. Dr. Gundry has worked in medicine for over 40 years, probably best known for his work as a cardiologist and a heart surgeon. But now his focus has turned to something different, which is teaching people how to avoid surgery by using his unique vision of human nutrition. And we're going to talk all about that today. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So let's start off from from the beginning. I mean, going into the world of being a heart surgeon, probably back when you were doing it, there probably wasn't a lot of focus on nutrition, or I'm assuming when you went through medical school, you took one course and perhaps that knowledge is now debunked at this point. So at what point in your life did you really start to look into nutrition and examine it further? Well, the arc of my life uh, changed about uh, 17 years ago when I was chairman of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University, just down the road from you. And uh, I'm famous for operating on people who nobody else wants to operate on. And I was referred a 48-year-old guy uh, from Miami, Florida, by the name of Big Ed, who I call in my book. And Big Ed had inoperable coronary artery disease. He had so many blockages that you couldn't put stents in, you couldn't do bypasses. And he, people like Big Ed would go around the country to various centers um, looking for someone to take them on. And uh, he had done this. And he had been going around the country for about six months after his diagnosis, and he wound up with me. And I looked at the angiogram of his heart from Miami six months earlier, and I said, well, you know, I I don't like to turn people down, but I'm not going to help you. I agree with everybody else. And he says, well, yeah, but here's the deal. I've been on a diet for the last six months, and I've lost 45 pounds. And this was a very large man sitting across from me, uh, 265 pounds when I met him. And yeah. And he said, and I've gone to a health food store and I've taken all these supplements. And he, he literally brought in a big shopping bag full of supplements. And I said, well, you know, good for you for losing weight, but uh, that's not going to help us in your heart. But I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine. I, I truly believe that back then. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, uh, I've come all this way. Why don't we do another angiogram? And let, let's see what I did. So, you know, I gave a big sigh and I said, yeah, OK. So we got a new angiogram of his heart, a new movie of his blood vessels. And lo and behold, in six months time, this guy had cleaned out 50 percent of the blockages in his heart. And wow. Now I want to interject and ask when you say he so at if he had wanted to, and I'm sure the story will continue here, but it, at 50 percent, would he have been? surgery ready? 
even at that point, if he if that had needed to happen? As it turns out, the next day I took him to the operating room and I did a five-vessel bypass. No. Now, had I known what I know now, um, that's the last thing I would have done, but I didn't know that then. Uh, so uh, we would have just kept doing what he was doing and tweaking it some more. Uh, but after we were done, uh, I said, uh, now, now tell me about this diet. And he starts describing what he was doing. And uh, about two sentences in, I said, well, wait a minute, time out. Uh, I had a special major at Yale University back in the dark ages where I uh, had a thesis that you could take a grade eight, manipulate its food supply, change its environment and predict that you would arrive at a human being. And I actually successfully defended my thesis. And then I tucked it away at my parents' house and kind of forgot about it. And as Big Ed was telling me his diet, I said, whoa, this is my thesis. And so I said, huh. So I called my parents in San Diego and said, hey, do you still have my tome? And they said, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's here in the shrine. <laughs> and I, I said, send it up to me. Now, why that'd be so interesting to me is that uh, I was a big fat guy, even though I was running 30 miles a week and going to the gym one hour a day. And I had high blood pressure and prediabetes and high cholesterol and arthritis so bad in my knees, I wore braces to run. And I was told it was genetic because my father was the same way. And I was eating a healthy, low-fat vegetarian diet at Loma Linda. So uh, long story short, I also asked him about his supplements and started looking at them. And lo and behold, I was using a lot of the supplements down in the laboratory to keep hearts alive for 48 hours in a bucket of ice water for transplant. And it never occurred to me to swallow the, these things. I was putting them down the veins and arteries of the hearts. And so I started taking a bunch of supplements and I put myself on my thesis and I lost 50 pounds my first year and uh, subsequently another 20 and I've kept it off for 15 years now. And I started putting my patients who I operated on, on this program. And lo and behold, not only did their cholesterols go down, but their diabetes went away and their high blood pressure went away. So after about a year of doing this at Loma Linda, I, I looked in the mirror one Friday morning and said, I can't do what I do anymore because I know how to teach people how to get rid of disease by you know, food and supplements. So I actually resigned my position at Loma Linda. Uh, my wife still calls it Black Friday. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, teaching people how to eat uh, doesn't pay very well uh, compared to being a heart surgeon. But anyhow, so uh, I set up um, a, a clinic in Palm Springs, and all I asked people to do uh, was, and I take insurance and Medicare and Medi-Cal, um, just ask them every three months, I want to do uh, about 10 to 12 tubes of blood on you and send it around the country to labs. And I want to know what's going on on the inside when we make certain changes on what you eat and the supplements you take. And because I'm a researcher. And so I viewed everybody as my continuing research project. So that's what started all this. How's that? That's great. Uh, I want to ask you about just to clarify, when you were saying that you were 
putting the vitamins or these things that you, it never dawned on you, but that you were putting it in the heart to preserve it for a transplant. Can you just tell me like, what do you mean by that? Were you soaking it in water that was infused with vitamins? Were you injecting? Like, tell me what that means. We would dissolve, for instance, like alpha lipoic acid or resveratrol, just to throw two out. And we would put it in an IV solution and we'd put this concoction down the veins and the arteries uh, of heart that had actually been sitting in a dead animal for uh, an hour. And uh, I wrote bunches of papers on how you could actually resuscitate a dead heart. And then we would throw that heart in a bucket of ice water for 48 hours and then put it in a new animal and it would come right back to life and act as if nothing had happened. And so I knew the power of these things at the cellular level, but quite frankly, it just never occurred to me that it would be a good idea to swallow them. I have a question about the uh, moment that that you know, you discovered this patient had 50% blockage, you know, 500,000 doctors said, I'm not even going to bother operating on you, or he had more than 50%. Um, What was it about either your training, your belief system at the time that you, I mean, of course, hearing about his diet and success and measuring it made you go, oh, that's interesting. But before that, what made you say to yourself, this guy's a lost cause, this is irreparable? What was it about you that didn't think that his situation was fixable? Well, we're, you know, we're taught that, for instance, coronary artery disease is a progressive process that all we can do is hopefully slow it down. The idea that we could actually reverse the course uh, is, is certainly not taught, nor would it be taught because it goes against Uh, everything in conventional medicine that, um, you know, this is a uh, process that there's no way to stop it. We just need to hopefully slow it down and then thank goodness that we have, you know, stents or that we have bypass surgery. But quite frankly, um, I'm very famous for doing re-operations on people second or third or fourth time into the chest. And it gets obviously more complicated and more dangerous every time you do that. And as you can imagine, it would get rather frustrating every you know, eight years or so to you know redo uh, what somebody did or you did uh, because this process uh, that, you know, was unstoppable, had clogged up the new blood vessels you put in. Knowing what we know now, what you know now, and the reason I get to the heart of this is I even, you know, recently published a book about uh, thyroid health and it involves really uninformed doctors because people, you know, you're, you're like you said, you're not taught this. But is it being taught now? Or are doctors in medical school right now still coming out with the same philosophy and they'll have to go learn and discover on their own? Well, you know, most, unfortunately, medical schools are funded, uh, research is paid for by big pharma and big food and big chemical. So if you go against any, if you're studying anything 
at that university that goes against what they have put the money into, your research project will get canceled, from what I understand. Yeah. yeah. All right. So it's a political thing, really, at the end of the day. And that I just want to enlighten the audience on that, that, you know, because we all go, well, why? You know, we, we know this stuff now. Or doctors like you know this stuff now. You're teaching people. You're writing books. Why don't doctors that are going through medical school know this? Why aren't they uh, incorporating some of this new stuff instead of being entrenched in 30-year-old you know, sometimes medical protocols. And I just want to shed light on that because um, the doctor on my book also uh, pointed that out as well when it comes to thyroid health. You know, if you're researching something that will go against a drug company's research, forget about it, you're out. You don't even have a shot to kind of prove your point, right? Right. You know, I mean, I think one of the most famous examples is um, Dr. Hollick from Boston University, the, the famous vitamin D doctor. And Dr. Hollick was a professor, a tenured professor of dermatology at Boston University. And he came out uh, quite vigorously that people should expose themselves to the sun and that vitamin D was absolutely essential and that we were very uh, deficient in vitamin D. And having a dermatologist tell people that they should expose themselves to the sun is an anathema in dermatology. And he was actually, even though he was a tenured professor, uh, stripped of his tenure and fired uh, because of his statements. Now, And he turned out to be so right. Correct. <laughs> uh, he was so right, but it went against established dogma. And it, uh, the interesting thing is he... There's a there's a good end to the story. He successfully sued and actually got his uh, tenured professorship back. But it's I mean, the idea that what we now know, know is true was so counter to dogma that a tenured professor at a major university could be fired for actually questioning dogma is, uh, I mean, it's just an example of how powerful entrenched interests in medicine uh, are. Yeah, and it's really good to hear that from you and from other doctors because you're in it and to hear it from the other side of it, 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 uh, it rings true a lot more than someone like me saying it. I'm really curious. I want to get into the, the the meat and bones of your of your book here. Um, you do you you know you talk a lot about lectins and and grains and beans and legumes, and that's right in line with what we talk about. But when we talk about the plant paradox, and this is something that I've heard, um, I heard a couple interviews on this topic and around it a little bit at the ancestral health uh, symposium and. I I love the whole expose into this idea that, you know, plants that have toxins that can kill or immobilize an insect can also silently destroy your health and impact your weight. And that's sort of what you're trying to really shed light on here or the meat of your book. So let's talk about that because, you know, as you mentioned, while many plant foods are good for you, there's, there's others that are really to blame for making you sick and overweight, or some should be eaten a little bit less than others, and we might think it's great because it's green, etc. So let's get into that and your theory of or your spiel about plants being master manipulators and, and how these things are detrimental to us. Yeah, um, you know, plants, like I try to convince people, uh, plants were here first. 
And even my evangelical Christian patients will give me the fact that plants were here for 48 hours before everybody else arrived. So there's no matter what your belief system, plants were here first. And they they had it really great because nobody wanted to eat them. And as hard as it is for us to grasp, plants do not want to be eaten. They have a life and they're subject to evolutionary pressures exactly like animals are. And so uh, they want their seeds to survive, their babies. And just like animals, they will protect their babies. Because if their babies survive, um, they win, just like animals. So this worked out great until uh, animals arrived. And the first animals were insects. And the problem for plants, once their predators arrived, was that plants couldn't run, they couldn't hide, they couldn't fight. But one thing that plants are very good at is chemistry. They're alchemists. And so they use chemical biological warfare to thwart their predators. And one of the systems they use, and there are multiple systems, are proteins that are called lectins, L-E-C-T-I-N-S. I'm not saying leptin, I'm not saying lecithin, uh, but lectin. And these are what are commonly called sticky proteins. And they're proteins that actually seek out particular sugar molecules to bind to. And these, in general, are sugar molecules on the surface of cells. And the idea is to basically hack into the animal's communication system in the case of insects, they uh, have a predilection to bind to a sugar molecule called sialic acid, which, among other things, sits between the nerve endings. And if you bind sialic acid, one nerve can't talk to the next nerve, and uh, you would paralyze the insect. And if you think about it, a paralyzed insect is a pretty good way to stop it. And so they, there's actually a, a, a war between plants and animals, and animals develop defense systems against lectins, and plants develop better lectins. And it's been going on for you know, millions and millions and millions of years. And up until about 10,000 years ago, there was a pretty good detente between uh, humans and plants, and we can get into that. But so lectins are one of the major ways plants defend themselves against being eaten. Yeah. And let's talk about, or just briefly mention those foods, because they are things that are definitely not on a pr primal ancestral list, like wheat and grains and beans. Can you give us a, give us a array of what to look out for when it comes to lectins? Yeah. So, uh, all, all plants have lectins, um, so there's nothing particularly intrinsically odd about plants having lectins. But the longer that our genes and our immune system, and more importantly, the microbiome, the bugs that live in us and on us, have been exposed to certain lectins, the more we've become 
tolerant of these and the more our bugs have evolved to eat them. And the more our bugs have evolved to tell our immune system that these blackwins, uh, we've known now for millions of years, and yeah, you know, they're a pain in the neck, but don't worry, we've got this handled, and we don't have to get all upset about it. Now, we come from a long line of tree-dwelling uh, creatures. We're actually a tree shrew. Uh, which my wife likes to remind me of every now and then. Uh, and uh, so we, we evolved eating leaves from trees. Now, fast forward to 10,000 years ago, when all of a sudden, uh, we, agriculture, we began eating the seeds of grasses and the seeds of beans that we had never eaten in the past. There's no evidence and my my research is in human evolution. There's no evidence that any great ape uh, has ever eaten grass uh, or interacted with grass. There's a few examples of baboons picking at a few grass seeds, but that's all that's ever been seen. So the, the lectins in grasses are totally different than the lectins in two-leaf plants. And so this is now a sudden change in what we've been exposed to and we didn't have the bugs that were used to these things and our genes were not used to these things. Beans uh, have so many lectins that um, the Center for Disease Control says that 20% of all food poisoning cases in the United States are caused by the lectins in undercooked beans. Um, Five raw kidney beans or five raw black beans uh, have been shown to kill a human being within five minutes by coagulating your blood. So these things are pretty, uh, pretty doggone nasty. Yeah, and I want to highlight something you mentioned, you know, in speaking about uh, the history of our evolution. One of the points I really I love, there's a great documentary called The Perfect Human Diet by an investigative reporter named C.J. Hunt. He's been on our show before. But one of the things that he and several paleontologists, you know, researchers talk about the science in the movie is they mention that if you look at all of the samples that they've been able to find for, you know, going back 60 plus thousand years, rheumatoid arthritis was never even found in the archaeological record until grains and those things came on the scene and we started to farm about 10,000 years ago. And I find that really interesting because it's absolutely linked with a lot of autoimmune diseases. As we know, we know that gluten, you know, can trigger Hashimoto's antibodies. You know, I know several people with rheumatoid arthritis situations, they have three fried olives and then they can't button their shirt the next day. You know, so these are real things that really affect people. And just a note out there for people and your loved ones, if you've got someone who's struggling with that type of thing, it's time to look at look at the lectins, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, last fall I, I gave a paper at the uh, International Microbiota Conference at the Pasteur Institute in Paris looking at 78 people with uh, biomarker-proven autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, like lupus, uh, who we put them on a lectin-limited diet on the plant paradox. And all 78 of them within six months had become biomarker negative. Uh, all of their markers uh, were negative just by removing uh, lectins uh, from their diet. 
And, and you're right. There's there's no physical evidence of uh, rheumatoid arthritis before the advent of agriculture. Interestingly, people uh, all, a little bit of divergence. They say, well, wait a minute. Um, the Mediterranean diet is the healthiest diet that's ever you know, been discovered, and yet the Mediterranean diet uses grains and beans. And as I point out in the book, there's actually been meta-analysis of the Mediterranean diet where you dissect out the various components. And these analysis show that cereal grains and beans are actually a negative aspect of the Mediterranean diet that are counteracted, if you will, by olive oil, by red wine, by the fruits and vegetables and the seafood that these people eat. Uh, interestingly, the Sardinians, who are some of the world's oldest, longest living people, have the highest rate of autoimmune disease in Europe. And uh, I get a kick out of that, that uh, there obviously is something wrong with that diet if they have so much autoimmune disease. And they unfortunately do eat a lot of grain. So Right. No, and I love that you point out that distinction because while the Mediterranean diet has uh, so many wonderful things about it and a great model in a lot of ways, there are some serious shortcomings. And like you say in your book, someone's like, ooh, Mediterranean diet, great. That means I can still eat grains. And you're like, actually, no, you can't. You know, I, I want to get into some of the... It's interesting. You you have so there's so much information in this book. You go into doing like a, a kickstart sort of three day cleanse. You talk about eliminating certain foods and really cleaning it up. What I would love to talk to you more about is that really you have this really interesting protocol you sort of move forward on for a few days to kind of jumpstart things. Can we talk a little bit about that to give people an idea of of maybe what they could even do on their own a little bit or try without even having to write your book, you know, read your book? Not that we don't want people to read your book, but you know what I mean? Something so they can get an idea of like, all right, I'm feeling stagnant. I want to start to clean up something and I want to jumpstart it. What do you, what do you suggest? Yeah. There, one of the things that people, I guess, I think need to know is that Really, everything that's going to happen to them in a, in a positive way or a negative way is going to happen because of changes in their microbiome, in the bugs that live in their gut. And there's some very compelling data that I give in my book that if you spend three days and three days only, uh, you will dramatically change the bacterial flora that's in your gut for the for the better. And one of the things we're learning is that there are basically good bugs and bad bugs. And I call the good bugs gut buddies in the book. And the, the bad bugs are basically gang members. And they actually control uh, your behavior. They control your food-seeking behavior. They uh, love simple sugars, and interestingly enough, they love saturated fats. Uh, on the other hand, the gut buddies love complex sugars, uh, polysaccharides, uh, fructo-oligopolysaccharides, and they thrive on these sorts of things, and the good, bad bugs starve to death on these. They can't use them. So what we want to do is there's a constant battle going on in your gut between the good guys and the bad guys for food sources. So what I try to do is get people to uh, take away 
the things that bad bugs like, and those are the simple sugars, and believe it or not, saturated fats for three days, and then to have them eat a lot of complex uh, starches. And that can be easily done with things that you can find in any grocery store, for instance, green bananas, plantains, uh, sweet potatoes or yams. Uh, one of my favorite tricks is jicama. Uh, go get a, some jicama. You can get it pre-sliced at a lot of stores. Yeah. So prebiotics are what good bugs like to eat. And one of the things that people should realize is you could swallow all the probiotics in the world, uh, good bugs, but if you don't give them what they need to grow, they will absolutely not grow and die off. And it's one of the mistakes that I think most people make. And that is they're swallowing probiotics right and left, but it's like, if I sold you some grass seed uh, here in Palm Springs and you came back a few weeks later and said, uh, you sold me bad grass seed because it didn't grow. And I said, well, uh, did you uh, water it? No, you didn't tell me to. Well, did you fertilize it? No, you didn't tell me to. I said, well, you know, how did you expect this grass seed to grow unless you gave it what it needed? And it's really the same thing with probiotics. If you don't give the bugs what we know they need to grow, uh, you're throwing your money uh, down the drain or down you. Right, and creating some expensive urine that we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> Which you can't sell anywhere, as far as I know. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I, let's, get, let's talk about that chicken example. I thought that was really fascinating, uh, that little success story you had um, with that patient. Can you give us that one? I thought that was a really fascinating one that people might need to look into themselves. Yeah, this is, I mean, I did not want to believe this. There's some, there's some interesting writings uh, for a number of years now that you, if you feed an animal a lectins that they are not used to eating, that they were not designed to eat, that you will have lectins in their meat. Now, another way of saying this is you are what you eat, but more importantly, you are what the thing you're eating ate. And so let's use chicken as an example. Chickens are insectivores. They're designed to eat insects. And they were actually introduced to farms to uh, go out into the pastures and dig through uh, cow pies uh, and looking for bugs. And they, in the process, would distribute the manure. And then they'd come back to the hen house and they'd lay eggs and no one would be dumb enough to kill a chicken because they were too valuable as egg, egg later, layers. And the only time you ate a chicken was when the old hen couldn't lay anymore and she became a stewing chicken. But so fast forward uh, to 1950 when we had a lot of gunpowder left over uh, and gunpowder making facilities from the war and gunpowder makes great fertilizer. And as Timothy McVeigh knows, uh, fertilizer makes great gunpowder. But so we were able to make cheap corn, cheap wheat, and cheap soybeans. And we can feed them to chickens, 
for an example. And you can even feed chickens organic corn or organic wheat or organic soybeans. And the federal government passed a law that said it's perfectly legal to label a chicken free range and organic if you keep them in a warehouse, never let them outside, and open the door to a patch of grass for five minutes every 24 hours, and the chicken has the potential to go outside. Now, there's 100,000 chickens crammed into the warehouse, and the idea that they would actually get outside is rather hilarious. But that's the definition of free-range chicken. So, And most people don't have any clue that that, in fact, is the legal definition of free-range. So I had a patient uh, from Los Angeles, a psychologist, who had very bad lupus, and she was on two biologic drugs and was smart enough to realize she didn't want to spend the rest of her life uh, doing this. And so we got her off of her drugs uh, by putting her on a lectin-free diet. And one of the things I ask people to do if they're going to eat chicken is to actually eat pastured chicken. And that literally means that the chicken went out and ate bugs. And it's hard to find. Yep, and they're pretty expensive. But the, you get the, when you buy the whole chicken, you get all the parts as well. So that's a benefit. So, uh, so we're, we're, she did great, except she had a little eczema left on her eyelids. And so we're going down the list of all the things not to eat. And uh, she was doing great. And we got to the list of things to eat. And we got to chicken. I said, now, you're eating pastured chicken, right? And she said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm eating organic free range chicken. And I went, what? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. You can't have that. She said, oh, yeah, you know, it's free range. And I said, whoa, here it is. So I said, I tell you what, humor me, uh, give up chicken and uh, call me back in a month. And sure enough, she gave up her organic free-range chicken and her eczema clear. And I've now seen this in a number of people. She was the first one that I actually you know, saw this to believe it. Uh, but you, are, you will find lectins in the food of animals that are eating what they're not designed to eat. So not only is it a horrible thing to feed, you know, cows or pigs, corn and soybeans, which they're not designed to eat, but the word organic uh, ought to send shivers up anybody's spine when they see it applied to, for instance, like salmon. Uh, organic salmon means that they were fed organic grains or beans or both. Because you can't follow a salmon out in the wild and see if it's eating organically. <laughs> I, 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 it should be if it's out in the wild anyway. But yeah, no, I, it's such a, it's so funny. We, we've done shows on these, you know, catchphrases or someone will say grass, grass finished, right? Not grass fed, right? And all these different. So yeah, it's such a trick when it comes to chicken. And again, chicken is one of those things that is the toughest to find pastured versus um, eggs or, you know, uh, grass-fed pastured meat. Yeah, yeah, it's a real problem. And in fact, really, we have to realize that chicken is an incredibly modern food. And I, I try to re remind my patients that Herbert Hoover's campaign slogan was a chicken in every pot, and it wasn't in every fry pan. <laughs> and 
And that's because the only time we ever ate a chicken was an old stewing hen. And we, we just have forgotten that, you know, less than 100 years ago, uh, chicken was an incredibly rare thing to, to eat. I want to, let's get into protein. So I mentioned this to you at the beginning, but th- when I was reading your book, a couple of things stood out where I was like, ah, you know, and I'll be honest, is that I felt that paleo, the term was misrepresented because it was lumped in with Atkins, South Beach, protein power, and other quote, high protein diets. So I want to just kind of throw this out because a lot of people really miss understand the paleo ancestral model. Now I still, I'm getting to the fact that even though we don't consider ourselves high protein, I see how you would given what your recommendations are, but I just want to clarify because when people come to us and are like, well, you know, I'm eating all this meat or they, or they do paleo and it doesn't work or it fails them. It's because they are usually missing a component and completely misunderstanding the entire paradigm. They think it is literally just eating from a food list, not eating certain things. But what it really is, is a, if we're looking at macros, it's a high fat, moderate protein, low carb diet. So for someone like myself, um, who's five, two, I'm a small female, I would, in a paleo primal paradigm, probably not maybe eat between forty and sixty grams of protein a day, where you would say that I should have twenty. But still, in the general theme of diets out there, that's not still high protein. And I think, again, it's one thing we're constantly clarifying with people that they think the go-to in this paleo primal world is to eat meat. And when you really look at a proper paleo primal plate, most of it's going to be vegetables. And I think people really misunderstand that. And I don't know if you did or not, or if you were just going on what people thought paleo was. But needless to say, even if I'm eating 40 to 60 grams of protein a day as my small frame, you suggest somewhere around maybe 20, 25 grams of protein. So let's get into why it is that you, and I do agree that most people overeat protein. People, uh, we've had pastured farmers on the show who were like, people eat too much protein in general. And I, I would absolutely agree with that. It's one thing everyone has to look at. But yours is sort of a low protein paradigm. So tell us how you got there. Well, yeah, and again, it makes me very sad to say this because I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where protein is king. And it's we are absolutely overprotonized in this country. And one of the things, uh, my first book, uh, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, was bought by Random House when I think I was able to show pretty well that Adkins' mistake, uh, they did all the Adkins books, was that he didn't realize that we have basically no storage system for protein uh, and that we don't waste energy so that we convert any excess protein into sugar. It's called gluconeogenesis. And that's why Adkins died a fat man. And you just have to look at some of the uh, figures of some of the higher protein gurus out there. And uh, I'm not casting aspersions, but you'll notice they're not exactly felt. And let me jump in and say, you know, one of the things about Atkins as well and the failure on on that paradigm is, again, you could still eat grains, right? It was just all about carbs there. And it also was not talking about the quality of meat. So you could be doing Atkins and you could be eating these grain-fed, sick, antibiotic-ridden animals as well. And so it didn't really take into account those factors that the ancestral community does, which is a really important difference, isn't it? 
Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that was obviously another one of, of his mistakes. The problem with both the Atkins and the South Beach diets was in phase two of the diets, they would reintroduce grains and they would always fail. And you would then go back to phase one. And my editors did all the South Beach diets as well. And we just kind of chuckled that, you know, look, here's here's why these diets failed. And my editor actually said, no, 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 no. Grains and beans are incredibly healthy for you. And uh, we had a wonderful time arguing about that for a, a long time. But back to protein. So the protein is, is animal proteins. Uh, unfortunately, uh, several of the amino acids in animal proteins uh, stimulate the uh, mTOR system of if you will, aging. And uh, I wish this wasn't true, but the experimental evidence and the human evidence is rather compelling. Uh, we, I think all of us in the uh, evolutionary community would agree that we did not spend most of our time uh, dining on woolly mammoths. Uh, we certainly were really good animal predators. We wiped out every animal species that we encountered. But uh, in in the past, before we became so efficient at this, uh, we were dining on bugs. We were actually eating a large amount of shellfish, and that's a whole other story. And one of the things that made us human is fire. And fire allowed us to break down the cell wall of plants. And unfortunately, uh, we all other animals have to use bacterial fermentation to accomplish that. No animal, not even termite, can digest the cell wall of a plant without a bacteria doing it for them. And so we were able to take advantage of tubers uh, with concentrated, wonderful calories with fire. And I think that that diet actually made us human. So one of the things that I talk about in the book uh, that I disagree with Dan Bruckner of the Blue Zone, is, and I, I agree with a lot of what he says, is if you look at these various diets in the Blue Zones, and for your listeners, the Blue Zones are the areas of the world with the longest living people. And uh, I lived in the Blue Zone for many, many years at Loma Linda University. So the, the interesting thing about Blue Zones are not that they all eat beans. Um, the Okinawans do not eat beans. Um, and not that they eat all these healthy grains because there's a number of Blue Zones like the Katavans that don't eat grain. But one of the things that's interesting about all of them is that they eat very, very minimal animal protein. And they all, except for the Adventists, do, do eat some animal protein. And I'm not against animal protein. I talked a lot about it in the first book. is good for you. But I think we in this country and probably around the world make the mistake that uh, protein is really good for us. And there's now two very large international studies that show uh, animal protein is equal 
to sugar consumption as the cause of our modern obesity and diabetic uh, epidemic. Well, now I would agree on that level with the gluconeogenesis and overeating protein because like we talked about, most people are overeating protein, so there could be that issue there. But does the, do those studies account for the f- quality of the type of meat being consumed? If you're eating fat off of a sick antibiotic shot up grain eating cow, you might have a different biological response than eating something that was pastured and grass fed, no? Well, it does, that actually part doesn't matter. It's because of the amino acid content of animal protein with particularly methionine. And methionine is uh, sadly the bad actor in all of this. Um, let me give you an example that I use in, in the book. You can take pigs and put them on an equal calorie diet. And one of the group of pigs you put on a methionine restricted diet and the other group you put on a normal methionine diet. And the pigs on the methionine restricted diet uh, will live 50% longer than the pigs on the regular diet. So methionine is unfortunately very prevalent in animal protein, and it's remarkably deficient in plant protein. And again, don't get me wrong, I grew up in Omaha, uh, but the, the evidence, the, the evidence is no matter how much we want to you know, think that we were designed to eat large amounts of animal protein, the evidence is actually different. The Adventist Health Study that my good friend and colleague Gary Murray runs sadly shows that of the incredibly long-living Adventists, the vegans live the longest. And as you add animal protein into their diet, whether it's eggs, whether it's milk products, they still have wonderfully long lives, but they're not as long as the Vegans. Uh, now, I think, just let me make make it clear that most vegans that I see uh, have are some of the sickest people that I encounter, and but that's because in America, our vegans are pasta and grain and beanatarians, and they're not actually vegetableatarians, uh, which they should be. Well, and in the Aventon study. And in general, too, I mean, there's so many other factors involved in health, right? Decreased stress levels, a sense of family, faith. There are so many other factors that could really affect life and longevity. So I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not saying you can't chalk it all up to diet, right? But that that's a big part of it because there's plenty of Americans who eat a wonderful diet, and ex- but then they overexercise or they're up late or they're stressed to the gills or, you know what I mean? And then that is affecting them in such a negative way that it doesn't really matter what they're putting in their body. It's getting counteracted. Very true. But what Gary Murray did was the, the, he took Adventists who had all those other positive factors And he just looked at animal protein consumption. And that, unfortunately, I mean, again, I wish it wasn't true. I really do wish it wasn't true. Now, the only thing that I can tell you that goes against this, and I was just there last week studying them, uh, is the village in southern Italy uh, at Chiaroli, where a third of the population is over 100 
And the Acciarolis are quite unique in that they eat anchovies uh, for every meal. And but that is, I, I need to move there because that would, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they, they eat so much rosemary. I was absolutely shocked. They chew rosemary. They cook with rosemary. They use a lot of olive oil. And quite frankly, they drink a lot of wine. And the hilarious thing is they smoke like fiends. And just like the Katavans, and this is kind of a divergence, but there are now two extremely long-lived people, the Echirolis and the Katavans, who smoke like fiends. And they don't have heart disease, and they don't have lung cancer. And this is not saying, oh, let's all go out and smoke. Uh, don't be, you know, let's not be silly. But sometimes we, we get distracted that these people have such an incredible anti-inflammatory diet and high antioxidant diet that they've overcome the negative aspect of smoking. Um, but it's fascinating. They all smoke down there. It's That's interesting. And not to mention probably the oregano consumption as well. You know, what a, an incredible antibacterial or, you know, fighter as well that they've incorporated into that diet, I'm assuming, being from that area. Their big, their big thing is rosemary. And it, um, I'm a huge fan of rosemary. Rosemarinic acid uh, has been shown to uh, improve neuron health. And rosemarinic acid is one of the best antihistamines there is. I take all my patients with allergies and put them on rosemary extract, among other things. So that's fascinating. So let's talk about the protein for people that are curious about this. So for example, you say for, you know, say a 125 pound woman, you're looking at, you know, maybe 21 grams of protein. And one of the things I do like that you said, and this is another sort of misconception or where people go wrong is people think that every single meal has to be this defined macro, you know? And, and I, I love that you mentioned that you're like, don't fall into this. I, I actually like uh, I think it's interesting. It's all, it's always worth a um, a test run for anybody. But you know, you say just the rule of eat one and done. You know, meaning you eat a single three to four ounce serving a day, right? And don't fall into this protein combining trap. So I think that that would be a really interesting self experiment. And I like the idea of bringing that to light because so many people think that at every meal they have to have meat or protein and that's where again people overdo it. Um, the other area too is I talked to someone who. They said, "Oh well, I have my you know bulletproof coffee in the morning." And I said, "Well, well, what's what does that mean to you? You know what's in there?" And this was a woman who was like five five and a small person, and she said she put two tablespoons of butter and two tablespoons of MCT oil in the coffee. That's like five six hundred calories of fat right in the. So again, I think this is really a lot. To people are misinterpreting what these things mean. It's not that something like that in theory, wouldn't be bad, but not at that level, right? And we're saying, yes, consume good quality protein. Of course, if you can get wild fish, that's wonderful. But not every single meal needs to have it in there. Right. And, you know, I mean, again, from an evolutionary perspective, it, it's so naive to think that, you know, every time we eat, we were sitting down and saying, oh, gee, now I have to have this much protein in my meal and I have to have this much carbohydrates and I have to have this much fat. And I guess I better keep, you know, searching because I don't have the right combination here, uh, which is absolutely ridiculous. We ate what we found. 
And just kind of as an aside, you know, do we really think that our ancestors got up in the morning or crawled out of our cave and said, what's for breakfast? Um, there was no breakfast. There was absolutely no storage system. And we ate breakfast when we found breakfast. And maybe that was at lunch. Maybe that was at dinner. But that's when we broke fast. Um, and the idea that we have to exercise, we have to eat something before we exercise is actually exactly the opposite of how we, we were designed. So, yeah, protein, uh, I think you don't have to have protein at every meal. That We have to realize that much of our dietary advice comes from the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Agriculture is not interested in our health. The Department of Agriculture is interested in the health of the farmers uh, in terms of monetary success, and that means encouraging people to eat farm products, and that's grains and beans and animals, unfortunately. I also like um, a lot of the, sort of, you, you have some sort of excuse success stories in your book. And, you know, one of the ones I really like that you point out is sort of the whole like skinny fat thing, right? You know, someone being like, and this is what I always say is, if, if you're looking at admiring someone's body from afar, a stranger, and you're like, wow, I, I wish I had that body, my response would be like, nah, I want to see their blood work first. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we, and we've seen this a lot because there are a ton of athletes who were following the high carb paradigm and they are all now sort of pre-diabetic or diabetic or insulin resistance. And they're having to go, wait a minute, we need to rethink this. And yet they're slim, trim, and look like the embodiment of health. And so really appearances are deceiving. Can you get into that? Yeah, they really are. Um, early on, a lot of my uh, patients were were overweight men who were drug in by their thin wives for, to have me fix them. And uh, these, I, I believe this is a team sport. So I'd ask these women to also get all the blood work and I, you know, get complete history and physical on them. And these skinny women uh, would be hypothyroid, for instance, and they'd be on antidepressants and they'd be on cholesterol-lowering drugs, even though they're eating at egg white omelets and no-fat you know, salad dressing. And they'd be on some uh, anti-inflammatory drugs. And here, here were these healthy women on maybe five or six uh, prescription drugs and asking me to fix their husbands. And when, <clears throat> when we looked at their blood work, they were just you know, giant balls of inflammation. And when we started taking away their healthy foods, uh, like their egg white omelet, and uh, having them eat pastured egg yolk omelets, um, among other things, uh, their blood work went, went to normal. So yeah, looks are very deceiving. You, there are a lot of skinny diabetics out there, or pre-diabetics. And one of the things that people should force their physicians to do, I think measuring hemoglobin A1C is a great idea, which basically looks at how you're doing handling sugars and proteins for two months before the test. But it's far more important to get a fasting insulin level. And I'm continue to be amazed uh, even now that there are a large number of people 
with normal fasting blood sugars, with, quote, normal hemoglobin A1Cs, who have very high uh, fasting insulin levels. And insulin is the scariest stuff around. It is a growth hormone. I've actually never seen a man or a woman with cancer, a man with a big prostate, a colon polyp who doesn't have an elevated insulin level. Uh, this stuff is miracle grow. And uh, it's we should make every one of our physicians get a fasting insulin level. And the lower, the better. Uh, less than 10 is considered normal. Closer you get to one, the better. Uh, my wife runs hers at less than one. I hate her. Uh, <laughs> I, I run mine about two, unfortunately. But uh, you know, my my wife's perfect, but uh, she knows that. So no, that's great. And I um, and then we'll be wrapping it up here soon. But a lot of your um, protocols here, of course, really primal and paleo align in a lot of ways. You know, you talk about avocado oil. You know, even MCT oil, Thrive Algae oil. A lot of things that. Uh, we use. Um, I love the emphasis on obviously wild caught fish. I think everybody could use a little bit more of that. Let's say you hate fish completely though. Where do you go in your paradigm? If you hate fish, it's just the worst thing in the world and you can't shove a can of sardines down your throat. <laughs> what What is your choice then? So I think you find yourself a well, I, I love wild shellfish even more than wild fish. Uh, and a lot of there are good sources of wild shrimp out there, for instance. Uh, believe it or not, oysters and mussels are probably one of the most environmentally friendly foods that you can eat. They do more to clean up our oceans than just about anything. But that's another subject. If you're going to if you're looking for good protein sources, just, you know, find yourself um Grass-fed, grass-finished meat, unfortunately, as you and I know, uh, companies realize that all cows eat grass at some point in their lives. And so legally, you can say that any beef is grass-fed uh, and not be lying, even though most of its time it was sent, spent in a feedlot. So um, in Los Angeles area, there's a fabulous company out of Northern California called Bel Campo. You're probably well aware of them. Yep. And people can go to eatwild.com, which is a list of all of the resources to find pastured farmers and places that sometimes deliver. Um, yep. Or you can cowpool with a, a friend. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. Pastured chickens are really hard to find. They're really expensive. Uh, I do treat myself to them. Uh, you know, uh, I love a chicken. People ask, what's your, gonna, what's your last meal? And I'd say it's going to be fried chicken and it's going to be my last meal because it's going to kill me. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, I, and you do, you are a, a supporter and a proponent of having a green smoothie yeah. every, every morning. And I like that. What, can you give us a rundown of, of what would be in such a regular smoothie for you? Yeah, I'm actually I'm looking at it even as we talk. So uh, we put in a big handful of romaine lettuce, a handful of spinach, uh, organic, please. 
Uh, we put in about four or five sprigs of mint. We put in a half an avocado. We squeeze a big hunk of lemon juice in. And then I put a little uh, vanilla sweet leaf stevia and throw in some ice cubes and throw it in your high-powered blender. Uh, I'll put a plug for my product. I put Vital Reds from Gundry MD in it and uh, have that every morning of my life. And uh, it so feeds good bugs. I can't tell you how good it is for your bugs. Well, and it's great to get that avocado in there too. It's waking up that brain and it gives you something to go on, especially, um, I love putting avocado and green smoothies, obviously because of the consistency, but also be the nutritional value because sometimes in the morning, uh, for someone like me, who's doesn't want to eat a heavy meal, I often don't, um, I don't really eat the first half of the day food, food, but something like a smoothie midday or mid morning with avocado in it, it, without the avocado or without MCTO or without some kind of fat, I do, my brain doesn't light up as much as it does when I do have that fat. So throwing half an avocado even into a smoothie can be a great way to, to light up the brain a little bit, huh? Yep, absolutely. And we'll often throw in a tablespoon of MCT oil, uh, depending on what we're going to do that day. Yep. Yeah, and we don't have uh, necessarily a lot of time to go into it, but you also then have, you know, you have got like, here's a three-day cleanse, here's a way to look at things, and then you also have, here's ketosis, and you have a big discussion on that, and that's uh, an important part of uh, being a human and achieving greatness in a lot of ways to adopt that or to be able to go in and out of that when necessary. So I just want to throw that in there that you do go into depth uh, on that as well for people that want to take it an extra step. And you know, as a lot of our listeners know, and you've said, you know, what do you feed obese people to lose weight? Fat. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it seems so counterintuitive. But before we go, do you mind spending a few minutes just touching on that? Yeah. Um, we, interestingly, humans are took over the planet because we are the only uh, ape that's capable of storing fat and using fat as a fuel uh, in ketones. Uh, The reason you don't find gorillas in Siberia is, uh, number one, their food source isn't there. But we have a unique, we are the fat-storing ape. And uh, as any woman knows, it's one of the stupidest designs in the world uh, because fat babies uh, are rather difficult to deliver. And yet uh, we have the only... Uh, fat babies of uh, of great apes. They're all born skinny. And so we are dependent, actually, and we have the ability to use fat to feed our brain and to allow our mitochondria, the little energy organelles in all of our cells, to equally and efficiently burn fat as a fuel instead of glucose. And as as I get into in the book, one of the big problems in the Western diet is that normally we should have the ability to rapidly switch from burning fat to burning glucose as fuel. And it's called metabolic flexibility. If you want to think about it, as I talk about in the book, a hybrid car that can switch from battery power to engine gas power, you know, as needs arise. We're supposed to have that ability. And with our diet, which is so calorie ridden with 
both carbohydrates and my personal feeling protein, we've lost that ability. And or if you do go without food for a long period of time, it's not a pleasant switch correct. into the ketone burning versus someone who's already fat adapted, already on this train, and you go, you know, you take a five hour, six hour plane flight and you don't have a meltdown, but like you said, with modern diets, someone goes into that phase and now their muscles are catabolizing, they've got a headache, they're angry, <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, and you know, that's the, you know, the low carb flu or the Adkins flu, it's a very real thing because uh, we just have lost that ability to switch over. And I, I go into that extensively on why that happens and how you get through this. MCT oil is really a, a real, I think, key um, several times a day to get through this period of time. And depending on how insulin resistant people are, it can take days, sometimes weeks to reestablish this flexibility. Absolutely. No, I, the, all of these discussions in your book are so fascinating. Um, the plant paradox. Tell us how we can find you online and get to know more about your work. So the easiest way to go online is gundrymd.com. You can actually sign up for my uh, newsletters. Uh, right now, I'm not taking new patients. We have a seven-month waiting list. We may consider reopening at the end of the summer, but you can also go to drgundry.com for uh, my office. And the book, The Plant Paradox, uh, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for the last five weeks. So, Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Go to amazon.com, go to barnesandnoble.com, or where, more importantly, go to your local bookstore and buy it, please. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's hit a good note. Uh, and I'm incredibly uh, pleased that uh, people are excited about it. I, I, I hope it's helping people. Certainly the reviews on Amazon show it is. So I'm very pleased about that. A lot of really great information in here. Um, another tidbit that I just want to throw out because this is something we get questions on and I uh, forgot to bring it up was you had mentioned, you know, when you talk about like chia seeds, you know, a lot of people go to chia seeds for fiber or for other things. And you mentioned that, you know, while you may be getting some good omega-3 fatty acids from chia seeds, their lectin content outweighs the benefit. And you have to sort of consider those things along this path. Um, I'm obviously yeah. a fan of limited, you know, nuts and seeds. Uh, we overdo that too. Uh, you know, two handfuls of some paleo granola and there's your whole day worth of calories and everything else. And you just had it as a snack, you know, and it's a, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yesterday uh, afternoon, I, I saw a patient with just amazing severe allergies and rashes uh, that has been completely cured of all that. A very healthy woman. And she is one of these reactors to chia seeds that, um, you know, I wouldn't have, you know, you you'd go, oh, come on, a few chia seeds. Uh, she started eating, tried. There's a wonderful company, and I have nothing but high praise for them, called Siete. Uh, they're, they make some fabulous tortillas, but they just came out with some um, tortilla chips. And unfortunately, the tortilla chips have uh, chia seeds in them. And, uh, this woman broke out in such interesting rashes. She actually came in yesterday afternoon to show me, uh, and it was the chia seed content of these chips. 
And again, if if I hadn't seen these things, I would have said, oh, this is so silly. And, you know, it's not chia seeds. But, you know, uh, Lauren Cordain, many years ago, uh, on the phone to me, said, you, when I was promoting chia seeds. And he says, you idiot, don't you read the literature? And I said, well, of course I do. And he said, well, I'm going to show you, send you two papers that, you know, show that chia seeds promote inflammation. And they do. Uh, so it's like, hey, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, no, and you know what? Here's the thing. That brand is amazing. And if you want to have an indulgent in tortilla chips, you can't get better in terms of taste on a, quote, paleo level for that. However, if you've got... A, moderation for normal people who might be able to tolerate it. But, you know, uh, quinoa as a pseudo grain also has a similar effect on some people I know who've got rheumatoid arthritis too. So if you've, right. So if you've got autoimmunity or any kind of issues that have not resolved, you got to cut all of it out to start. And chia seeds and things like that are a place to look that people, it's sneaky. Like you said, I, you might have heard the story and laughed at someone for being a hypochondriac until you see them in your office with rashes, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, no, exactly. and it's because they're trying to indulge in a healthy chip, but you know, for them, it, it really is a, a life ruiner, so. Yeah, I, I call these people my canaries, and... Uh, That's right, the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, exactly, and she's a canary, um, so... Well, thank you so much for your work and for joining us. And we'll put all of the links to your website and to purchase your book on uh, online. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with before we go? No, uh, keep up your guys' good work and uh, keep getting the uh, avocado mayonnaise out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. By the way, Kraft just tried to do one of those moves, but there's has soy oil in it still. So while they've got the cover, you know, the picture, avocado oil mayonnaise, and then you're like, you look a little further and you go, damn it. <laughs> so thanks so much again. It was great having you on the show, uh, The Plant Paradox by Stephen Gundry, MD. All right. Thank you. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.